Hey, firecrackers, it's Naomi, and welcome to the firecracker department. Well, I have to tell you, this uh, intro has been tricky, um, and I have recorded it several times. Uh, I've been pacing and chatting with head producer, core firecracker member, publicist, and my dear, dear friend, Winnie Wong, about what to say about the horrific events that happened last week in Atlanta. The bottom line is we're processing it. Just gone back and forth so much about what to say and what to do. And at the end of the day, we need to say something and we need to do something. It's not easy to speak on what happened. There needs to be a call to action. And uh, I have to say, I listened to this incredible interview with Daniel Day Kim. If you haven't seen the interview, go over to his Instagram page. It's incredible. And in the interview, he spoke about using your platform. And this, this makes sense. You know, whether you have a big platform or a small platform, I mean, we all got platforms these days, but use it, you know, use it to support the Asian community, amplify Asian friends, family members, Asian firecrackers, shine a light so bright celebrating who they are. That, that makes sense to me. Another thing you can do is donate if you have the means. Go to advancingjustice-atlanta.org and look for their donate page to support the victims and their families directly. This is something we can do. What we can't do is nothing. We got to do something. We are standing with you, our Asian firecrackers. I mean, Winnie and I, but the entire firecracker community. You are not alone. There is a team of like amazing, fierce firecrackers that have your back and are here to support you. Just reach out to us, to me, to Winnie. If we reach out to each other and offer support and love, I think that's going to be one of the steps. And so in the process of processing this, we just want to reach out and let the Asian community, the Asian firecrackers know that we're here and we're in your corner 100%. So take care of each other and take care of yourself out there. Okay, our shout out for this week is to the script department. If you have not joined us for the script department event, which is quarterly, four times a year, plus maybe some bonus readings every once in a while, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter to get those announcements and be part of those events. They're truly incredible. Far Marani and her team at the script department do an extraordinary job. And if you are a writer, our script department team is always looking for scripts for our next live reading, which right now is happening Sunday, April 25th, April 25th. Mark it on your calendars. And that means screenplays, teleplays, stage plays, musicals, web series. We like it all. Now, here's what the Firecracker Department will do for you. We will give you a cast of up to six professional actors to read up to 10 pages for a live Zoom audience reading. This is a private event. And at the end of the reading, we have a Q&A with the audience and the cast members. It's a discussion that I have to tell you is vibrant, electric, inspiring. And I see the writers just getting so jazzed about their writing. It's really, it's really a treat to watch. Now, just to say, we are not looking for the perfect script. No way. And we don't want the script that is in mid-production. That'd be really weird. What we want is like the script that you're maybe struggling with or maybe you just need to hear out loud to get another 10 pages going. Our reading series is designed to help you shape the direction of your script. And we are always accepting scripts. It's on a rolling basis for future readings. And so please submit. And if you're an actor, we're always looking for new voices to join the cast. So submission details are available on the website, firecrackerdepartment.com slash script, D-E-P-T. Our January reading was so much fun. And I have to give a huge shout out to our team led by Farah Marani, as I said. Honestly, these, these folks are just absolute dynamite firecrackers. We've got Tanu Ravi, Lauren Shell, Lisa Lafferty, and Rebecca Marquart leading this year. And you know, they just bring so much joy and heart and smart. Hearts and smarts, that's what they bring. It's just one of my favorite events. You can get the Zoom link to join our audience when tickets go live via the link in our bio or on our website. April 25th, mark it in your calendars, April 25th. It's going to be amazing, and I hope we'll see you there. And now, okay, it's Firecracker Department Spotlight time. We have a brand new Real Women's Network creator spotlight for you. Now, we partnered with Real Women's Network, a new online streaming service that showcases women filmmakers and content creators, 
and I sit down with one of the creators featured on the platform every month. So you can stream their show and features directly from Real Women's Network and then listen to the podcast to find out more about the creator. I've talked with Crystal Chappelle, one of the co-founders of RWN, Andrea Evans, executive producer and longtime soap star, Emily El Fadli, queer filmmaker and editor from the UK, and now fourth Firecracker Department spotlight is playwright, filmmaker, author, teacher, Brooke Berman. Now, Brooke wrote and directed Uggs for Gaza, which premiered at the Aspen International Short Fest, where it won the Audience Special Recognition Award. All Saints Day, a short film she wrote, won Best Narrative Short at the Savannah Film Festival and played at the Tribeca Film Festival. She adapted her play Smashing for Natalie Portman. Yes, Natalie Portman. What? and has written features for the Mark Gordon Company, Vox Films, Red Crown, and Fugitive. Beyond her filmmaking and writing for the stage, Brooke is also the author of three nonfiction books, including her memoir, No Place Like Home. She has several short films in different stages of development, and her audiobook of her memoir, No Place Like Home, is coming out in April. Oh, just, she's just all that in a bag of chips. Speaking with Brooke, I have to say, was just incredible. I just love being able to have like a solid hour with these creators, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's nothing short of inspiring. She's also been shopping around a new play in her spare time and a pilot, oh my gosh. And somehow, around all this, she still has time to teach. She's teaching screenwriting at NYU this fall and in the spring, playwriting at Bard College. Brooke is booked and busy. Brooke is booked and busy. You say that three times fast. So I'm so excited that she had time for this chat. Truly, the fact that she could squeeze in an hour is just extraordinary. Okay. Let's get on with it. Here's my chat with Brooke Berman. This is such a fortunate and such a great way to learn about new artists like yourself. Because, you know, like, I'm not telling you anything new. The world is huge and you can only take on so much artistry. And I spend a little bit of time in New York and seeing theater because it's really important to me to infuse my creative tank with some theater. But uh, I love finding out about your, your journey because you started in theater, right? Mm -hmm. And were you at Juilliard for playwriting? I was. So I can kind of tell because your films are actors' films. They're yeah. not worried about like huge like sets and special effects. They're like dialogue and connection. Yes. Is that yeah. always been your, your focus as far as human behavior um, story goes? I mean, in film, absolutely. When it comes to the camera, I'm really interested in people. In On stage, I'm interested in people and language. Um, and language becomes less of a thing when you have a camera involved. It, it's just a different medium. But on stage, like I've always loved the direct address, for instance. Like I love when a character does, says or does one thing in a scene and then turns to the audience and goes, okay, here's what I didn't say. Or I have all yeah. these plays, you know, that play with point of view and certainly you know when I started writing 20 years ago 20 years ago <laughs> point of view wasn't happening in the same way on television like right now you have these amazing shows like Dear White People where you have this person's point of view that person's point of view and you see like a Rashomon but TV wasn't doing that back then and, and it was a place where plays really could um, you know, because the audience without a camera the audience gets to choose who they're tracking and what they're looking at so in my, in my play, it's certainly around the time I started, that was a big thing I was interested in. It was like, whose story were we seeing? Whose story were we tracking and why? And what did each character have to say about the other character's position in that story? Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because the short films like your All Saints Day and your um, Uggs for Gaza, like it, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's one person's story. Like it does feel like you get a bunch of point of views. Is that intentional? Am I like taking all the well, thoughts? I should point out that I didn't direct All Saints Day. I wrote it right. and I worked very collaboratively with the director, Will Frears, who also comes from the theater. And I was on set with him and, you know, Will and I built that the way a writer and director work together in, in the theater, like as partners. Um, but that was Will's film, that the visual aesthetic was Will's, the DP was Will's, the imagery was Will's, the casting was Will's, like, you know, that was really his vision. Mm -hmm. um, Uggs for Gaza was mine. 
And with All Saints Day, I think to some extent, you know, when Will and I started, I said, like, I want to learn how this works. I want to learn how to make a movie. I want to sit with you. And so he was really open to that. Um, But Uggs for Gaza, yeah, was mine. And built um, as a collective. I mean, we also built that as a play. It started as a short story that my husband, Gordon Haber, had written when we first moved to L.A., And then when I decided I wanted to make it into a film, the first thing I did after I adapted it was to bring a group of actors to the house and have them read it to us and talk about it and develop it as a company. Uh, And I think that sense of like, I'm not, I have to say like, I'm, I'm not all that interested in a singular narrative. Like we don't move through the world as one person against the, everybody else with a lot of bit players. We move through the world as a collective. Yeah. So yeah, it is intentional. I crave working with artists like you because of your, your like having a bunch of actors come over to your house to work on a film is like, oh, that sounds blissful. You're <laughs> eating food, is. you're drinking wine, you're talking about the story. That sounds so great. It's so great. It's so blissful. I just did it. I've started a new project, a feature called Ramona at Midlife, and I'm writing it for a specific group of actors. And so we just did a Zoom reading of the first draft. And, you know, getting to hear the words out of those particular voices out of through those people and you know certainly when we're able to do things in person again getting to see those bodies around the table helps build the movie because you really start to feel like it's her story it's not just some like floating head in my brain it's her it's that person in space and so many of the actor impulses um the, the, like their first instincts with text really inspire me. It makes me want to write more for that person. Yeah, you kind of get into their rhythm and mm-hmm. then you're writing with their, them in mind. Mm-hmm. And where, when, did you know, when did you know playwriting was the way you wanted to have your voice heard as far as cho- the chosen art? Yeah, I mean, well, that's changing because I make movies now, but um, I started- I know, but that's to me, yeah. I want to know everything. (laughs) So I started as an actor. I wanted to be an actor. I went to college thinking I was going to be an actor. And um, then I dropped out of college thinking I was going to be an actor. And I ran off and studied with experimental theater director Anne Bogart. And I not only at that point was going to be an actor, but was going to be her kind of actor. And those actors are um, really involved in building a piece of work. It's a, it's, a, it's a form. She teaches the viewpoints. She runs the directing program at Columbia now, but she, um, yeah. her whole thing is the six viewpoints, which makes theater building. It puts it in the actor's body. And, um, right. and they do a lot, a lot of, of physical theater, like mm-hmm. Gutowski stuff. Yep. Yep. All of that. And so, um, what? I feel like we're talking about an old friend, like a uh, theater, my old friend. <laughs> <laughs> you came out of theater also? I did. And, and when I meet people like you, I just, uh, I mean, you see them on set too. And you, you see them, it's almost like they're this like uh, <laughs> foreign unicorn. But it, and it's just, a, it's, it's passion, right? It's passion for the storytelling. But go on, tell me again. So you went, you dropped out of college. Yeah, and I went to go work with Anne. And, um, and I was very, at that point, I was really clear that, the, that I wanted to do new plays. I really wasn't that interested in, um, in doing Shakespeare. I wasn't that interested in, although I'm madly, madly in love with Chekhov, like it wasn't, my heart really burned for new plays. I wanted to speak contemporary words. And while I was working with Anne, my favorite living playwright came to our theater, to Trinity Rep, uh, Maria Irene Fornes. And I loved Irene Fornes. I loved her work. I wanted to be in her plays. And um, also that year, I started performing my own writing. I was doing these, I'd been really influenced by um, early, early John Leguizamo, like when he would go at PS122 and like by himself, just like stand up in a room and perform and improvise. And um, David Cale and Holly Hughes and Spalding Gray and these amazing one person performers. And I wanted to do, in addition to being an actor in new plays, I wanted to do that. You know, like I looked at these careers like, like, like David's where he could be in somebody's play, but then go make a piece of his own work. And I thought, oh yeah, yeah, it's that. You wanted to have like, you wanted to spin some plates. Like it wasn't enough for you just to be an actor and a vehicle to somebody else's. That's right. I I wanted 
I wanted to spin plates and I really liked contemporary language and I liked the rhythm of contemporary language. I liked the idioms of contemporary language. I liked the music of contemporary language. I wanted to do something with that and the way that people actually speak. And so then I went around following Maria Irene Fornes around Providence <laughs> and watching her put this play together and what of the night. And, um, and I kind of filed it away. Like, I like that. Whatever that is, I like that. But I didn't think I would be a writer. I still thought I was really here to be a performer. And I moved back to New York um, the following year, and I did a ton of solo performance. I just wrote um, these one-person pieces for myself, like 10 to 15 minutes, maybe 20 at the longest. And I performed them all around Lower Manhattan in cabarets. Wow bars, cafes, festivals, like what have you. And um, as I was doing that, I wrote a play. I wrote like a 50 page play. It came out of my solo work. It was, I just started putting other bodies on stage to see what would happen. And I self-produced wow. it that year and I was in it with a bunch of my friends and it, we had a blast. It was so much fun. And then sort of playwriting was on the table as well. And a couple months after that, I, I had submitted work to Naked Angels, this theater company. Um, they used to be just in New York, but now I think they're New York and LA. And they produced me. They called me up and said, we want to do this 10 minute play you wrote. Um, for we want Missy Yeager and Ioni Skye to be in it. And I was like, okay. And I mean, I had no <laughs> idea. I was 22 years old. I had no idea what playwrights did in rehearsal. Um, I still thought I was going to be an actress. Like I went to these rehearsals and they would ask me questions. And I, I mean, I would look at them blank faced. They would say like, why am I doing this, Brooke? And I would think, I don't know. Why are you doing this? <laughs> And when that experience but was it, it, like that I've made it like this is like groundbreaking for me. This is one of those pinnacles. Yeah, totally. I totally felt that way. I was being produced in an evening of one act plays by Wendy Wasserstein and Craig. Yeah, Lewis yeah, yeah. And John Robin Bates. Wow. Like, uh, fuck. Yeah, that was like, oh my God, <laughs> here I am. And I will never forget, yeah. I went to their opening night party and I was so shy and I didn't know how to talk to anybody and I felt so awkward. And the one person who was nice to me was Martha Plimpton. Martha Plimpton was also I'm doing such her first I know she had been, you know, she was a movie star at that point, but she really hadn't done a lot of theater. And I think that might've been her first play too. And she was just so nice. And I was like, okay, she's being nice to me. I can't be a total loser because she's being nice to me. And, um, but it was- and was there like something though, like when you, when you went from solo performing to playwriting with many, many people, was there something like, did you kind of go, ah, I'm getting lonely on stage? Or like, what was the impetus for that? Yeah, I think I'm getting lonely on stage. I want other voices. I want to see what happens yeah. with other bodies on stage. And kind of that thing I was saying, like, where a character comes out and tells you their story, but then you see it. And I was interested in that, like a character who would say, blah, 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 happened. And then you'd see it play out and it plays out a little differently than the person. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're doing your plays and you're getting produced and so in like that. your well, 22. No, no, no. So, so, like, so I did that play with Naked Angels and because I because I found the whole thing so overwhelming, I realized afterwards I really wanted to understand what the form was and what playwrights did. And so I started going to their Tuesdays at 9 and I would just bring in 10 pages a week and I started learning how to write a one act play. So then I wrote another play and produced that um, the first production was actually with Rain Wilson and, uh, and Melinda Wade and, and me and a bunch of people. We did it at Dixon Place, this uh, performance art space in the East Village. And then we did it again uh, without Rain. We went on to, to do it somewhere else um, on the Lower East Side. And then after that, I was like, okay, I think I get this playwriting thing. And so then I was pursuing playwriting and acting simultaneously. And then by the time I went to Juilliard a couple years later, I felt like I could, I needed to just wrap my brain around playwriting and acting sort of fell away. And I was just thinking about building plays. And I found that, you know, after years and years and years of trying to do both, suddenly like being the person that can sit back and hold the world and hold everybody's journey and kind of hold the story for all the characters, 
felt as good as being on stage. So you didn't mourn the acting broke? Acting went away. And then I was just writing plays. And, um, yeah. and then I started getting produced after that. I had a 10 minute at Actors Theater of Louisville at the Humana Festival, Dancing with the Devil. And then after that, I had a play called The Lady Plays. Um, and then I started, and this play called The Triple Happiness that I was working on. And then I, I made this play called Smashing. And I took that yeah. to the meal. And then that was later produced with the play company. And, it's, and that play sold to film. And it was because of that play that I started working in movies. Oh, interesting. So it wasn't really like intentional, like there's time for my theater career and now I'm moving into film. It was sort of like the universe took you there. Pretty much, yeah. I had always wanted to make films, but I was afraid. I mean, I didn't think it seemed like film always seemed like such a bigger endeavor. You know, playwriting, you can be like, oh, hey, guys, I wrote this play. Like, let's do it in my living room. Come on. And it's like a Julian movie from the 30s. And you can just kind of do it and like invite your friends over. But with a movie, you really have to understand the camera and, and, and you have to understand so much about I think visual logic. And I, I always thought like, well, I want to do that, but I don't know how exactly. And then um, when we started casting Smashing as a play, we had offered the role to Natalie Portman and she couldn't take it because she was shooting Star Wars, (laughs) but she, (laughs) she, she liked the script so much. She came to see it and she, and she, um, later called me and the director up and optioned the script and you know suddenly we were making a movie. I'm just curious because it does feel like and I know this isn't the way but from the outside it feels like well I'm gonna be an actor no I'm gonna be a playwright and everything just kind of falls into place. Was there a time like in your theater writing career that you were like oh this is too hard or it's it's not it's not lucrative like I think a lot of people fall out of love with theater because they realize they can't make a living. Oh, every day, every day to, to this day. I mean, today, like every day I wake up and think, Oh my God, it's so hard and I'm not making money. And like, what am I going to do? I don't know. But you know, it really has been, I've never been one of those kind of people who can set a goal and like, write down the steps to achieving their goal and run out the door and make it happen. Nor have I ever been one of those people that that whole like manifestation thing works for. Like, that's just not me. It doesn't work that way. But what does work for me is that I work very, really, 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 really hard every day. And like, some days it feels like the universe and the universe and me kind of align. It's like the mists of Avalon, right? Yeah, like sometimes, no, I get it. Yeah. and I do think that there's a piece that's just timing. And I do think that there's a piece, yeah. you know, certainly in my twenties, I had a period where I thought, oh my God, I can't do this. It's really fucking hard. And I quit the theater. This was the year before Juilliard. I quit the theater entirely. I like met some like hot hippie guy and moved into his van and drove across the country for six months and lived out like every hippie fantasy I had about not being in the theater. And um, by the end of it, I came back and got into Juilliard. So like I was ready to go live in Portland and be a massage therapist. And the universe was like, actually, actually we have a better place for you. (laughs) Come this way. But you didn't like, like you, Juilliard isn't one of those places you just fall into. You have to work really hard for that process to, to be. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I applied and I got in. I mean, I, um, I had written two plays at that point. I had the one act that we did with Rain Wilson and I had the, I had another one act I'd written that later became the Liddy plays. But at that point was, um, you know, I don't even remember what it was called, but it, it was, it later I had these, it's these four little one acts that are called the Liddy plays and, and um, Michael Bear Kiva from the Hanger Theater directed them and we did them, we kind of put them on their feet a few years ago. Um, yeah. But I had two plays. And I had so written, yeah. You had them already. It's not like you had to go away and be like, oh God, I have to write some plays for this application. No, you know what? Actually, there was a full-length play in between. I had written one full-length play. I, 
I had gone, I'd taken this bizarre trip to Los Angeles in 1995 to visit a friend. And I came back and I wanted to write about it. And I was still writing solo pieces. And I ran into the artistic director of a company that I had done some work with. And he said, do you have any full length plays? And I lied and said, yes, I'm working on one right now. And he said, great, <laughs> you would love to do a reading of it. And I said, great. And I went away and called up the friend that had directed my very, very first play, the thing I had done when I was like 22, uh, this guy, Doug Wagner. And I called him up and said, hey, could you, how do I write a full length play? And he would give God. me like assignments. He would say like today, write in a character who's Julie the Cruise director from The Love Boat. And today, write a fantasy sequence between those two characters. And um, today, write the big problem. Wow. And so I did that, and I gave it to that company, and we did a reading of it. And that was the play that got me into Juilliard. That must have made you feel like you were home. Like, because, yes. like, if somebody sent me into, like, today you're going to write this character, I'd be like, I'm, the, today is not a good day for me. I don't love writing <laughs> like today. I may need to take a break. So I can see like the passion that you have was just sparked by this mentor of yours because then you just went on your own process. Well, look, Naomi, I think you have to, I think there is no right day to write a first draft. A first draft by its nature is bad. Otherwise you wouldn't have a second draft. Like you have to have right. an imperfect, do you know what I mean? I love when I teach, totally. I teach this, um, I teach this Anne Lamott essay called Shitty First Drafts. And what she says, it's quite brilliant, is like, you, you have to have the shitty first draft so that you have something to refine. So like, I think a, a huge part of being a writer is just putting down whatever you have on the page, whether it's a good day, a bad day, an indifferent day, whether you make any sense to anyone but yourself, so that there's, yeah. you know, 25 to 50 pages of text in front of you and then you can look at that and start to shape it yeah but the the thing with folks like you is i think you say things like then you start to shape it and i go that's pretty much done isn't my first draft that's pretty much i can just walk away and somebody else can so that's when i know my passion isn't writing i do like writing but i i find yeah. it very challenging yeah. i find it very isolating I mean, that's why I invite actors in so early, you know, yeah. that's why yeah. I like to get other bodies involved. And I mean, I like the collaborators in the room. That's how we make plays and that's how we should be making movies. I know, I know it's this weird disconnect. We had this discussion in my acting class of like, okay, so you're looking at the character, you're delving into the character and then forget everything, just hit this little blue piece of tape. And yeah. it feels so disconnected. Yeah. So how are you, it's true. how are you connecting those two things? Well, with Oxford Gaza, for instance, I started with a company of actors and I worked on the script with the actors for a year. All of those actors, the only person that came in last minute was Amir Arison, um, who plays the low level contact. Um, the, the imam says, I have this low level, I have this contact in a low level. Oh yeah, company. yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and that's Amir Arison from The Blacklist that came in. And Amir was the only person that was new. Everybody else had developed the piece with me and, and worked on it the way we work on a play. So for instance, when you're on a film set and there's no time for rehearsal, if you've worked on a piece with a company for a year, they're all good. Like when they've asked all their questions, yeah. like figured shit out together. Um, and the producers and I, the producers uh, were also artistic collaborators. So like we all really built that project co collaboratively and collectively. Um, yeah. And so with my new, my new piece, Ramona at Midlife, I have this first draft. I wrote the first draft for a specific actress, um, for actually the three lead actors. I've had them in mind the whole time. And I'm gonna do the same thing. Like I'm gonna develop the script with them as I go through the process of attaching crew. Um, I want the DP to be involved in that process because I think they should build their visual logic from the story logic. We should all be working yeah. together and having the same, um, what's it called when the 
firecrackers go off like the same, um, building the same connections and having the same aha moments together and making oh, these yeah. memories okay. together. Um, you know, and then I'm gonna raise the money and shoot it. <laughs> I mean, you say that like, oh, I'm just gonna raise the money because all the things that you're talking about take money, right? Like the the blissfulness of having people come over to your house or having a year to work on a short film that takes money and dedication of your artists. Have you well, found that did not take money. Yeah, I mean, with Dogs for Gaza, that did not take money. Those actors were all my friends, and they were they did not get paid. They did that as a labor of love. Um, everybody else got paid. The crew got paid. The DP got paid. Everybody, everybody else. I mean, I think once you're paying people, you, you know, even when you're not, I think you always want to be really, really generous with people's time and really respectful of their boundaries. So certainly if I'm not paying somebody, I wouldn't ask them to do anything they don't want to do. Um, with Ramona, I'm going to pay everybody, obviously. But actors, in my experience, you know, especially television actors, because they're, they're trained to do this collaborative thing, right? They're trained to ask questions, to be involved in rewrites. Theater actors, you know, we playwrights are in the room rewriting for them throughout the rehearsal of a new play. And they're, they're trained mm-hmm. to have this, like, yummy, collaborative, exploratory kind of presence. And in television, there just isn't time for that. Like it really is go stand over there. We need you to hit this moment. And um, so I found that the actors in Uggs for Gaza were delighted to be involved in my project and to have so much collaborative input and so much creative participation. and then certainly with the feature, I would also want them to have some financial participation. Like if anybody makes money, they'll make money too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you paid them in creative bucks. Um, yeah. If the movie ever makes money, they'll, they'll see it. But, you know. Um, I think that's like when you're having a collaboration. Yeah. Like when you're having a collaboration, you might not be able to pay them in financial bucks, but you're like, I'm going to give you such a creative experience that it'll feel <laughs> worthwhile for you. Yeah, and I mean, in, in, in ideally, you want it to be both. I mean, I, I, I want to pay people real money also. <laughs> um, with Uggs for Gaza, we shot, we shot the whole thing on $7,000. We raised nine wow. and some money for festival fees, but it was a lean, lean, lean budget because Uggs for Gaza was my first film as a director, and I really just wanted to know if I could do it. So I didn't yeah. want it to be a $20,000 budget. I wanted it to be lean and mean. And everything was donated. Um, the only location we paid for was the Koran Center. And, um, you know, we bought a bunch of food, but we also got a lot of donations. And that was one of the things that producers and I worked really hard on is keeping that budget tight. Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn from that first experience as a director? What were the uh, victories and the challenges? Um, I loved it. I loved it so much. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the biggest victory was that I can't wait to make another one. And I loved, um, I loved, you know, what I love about being a playwright is getting to sit in rehearsal and build the play with the actors and director. I mean, that when I transferred, when I moved, so I first moved to Hollywood to be a screenwriter, and I went from this fully collaborative playwright in the room, working with a company of actors, to suddenly being this isolated writer person. I mean, yeah. you sell a yeah. script and it's over, you're done. They're like, okay, you did your steps, see ya. And everything else that happens in production, like, it's really nice if they include you, but they might not. And there are lots and lots of decisions that get made that, you know, have nothing to do with the writer. And it's it's the exact opposite in theater. So suddenly getting to be a director allowed me to stay in the room through creative conversations and to really make sure that my project was being served. And I found my great delight that the director-DP relationship and the director-editor relationship were what the playwright-director relationship feels like in the theater. Everything was collaborative. I always had a partner. There was always another set of eyes. We were always making things together. And that just felt amazing. And after 20 years as a playwright and being trained as an actor, you know, I know how to work with actors. Like that's something I can keep my eyes closed. I know how to do that. And the pieces that I had to learn were visual logic. I had to learn to talk about cinematography. I had to learn to talk right. about 
whether I think the camera is far away or close and why and you know what who what what imagistic world I'm referencing and, and you know and so that um that's been a great piece I remember the biggest challenge there was this one day we were shooting and my AD said to me, um, so set up the shot. Like, where do you want it? And I was like, I was like, well, bring in the actors, dude. Like, I can't tell you where I want to put the camera until I see their bodies. And yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Um, that, it was interesting to me to, to learn that and to learn that I actually could bring their bodies onto the set for five minutes and ask them to stand in a couple different places so that I understood where I wanted that shot. And the more I learn about yeah. how directors are trained and the more I learn about cinematography, I'm yearning, 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 yearning to, um, when I make my feature, I wanna go and sit in all the locations with my DP and just sit there oh, with yeah. really like daydream over the architecture. Like yeah. even learning that that's an option felt revelatory. I mean, that's just it too. Like you can, you're your own boss. Like when you're directing, when, you know, like in our life, if you say, I'd like to go and spend some time in all the locations, then that just can happen. Like yeah. I want, and I want the actors to come and have like meals with me. Like all those things, if you think it's valuable to your story, you can make happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah. great. So where did you get your love of people from? Because I, uh, like, as I said, with the All Saints Day and with Gaza, like, there are dialogues between two people connecting. You know, there's two people, either the, the Uggs for Gaza, where he's connecting and disconnecting. But where did you fall in love with people? Oh, that's such a great question. Probably my mom. My mom was in love with people. My mom was super, super social and just always yeah. really interested in people and I probably, I mean, I, I've been like that my whole life. So I, I might yeah. need that from her. Is she still around? No, she died in 2007. Oh, uh, so do you see, my mom passed away earlier this year and every once in a while I hear myself or I see like little things of myself, even like when I just did that, I went, oh, that's a mom. Like, do you see your mom in your style of directing and creating? No, not so much. I mean, the only thing I will say is that she was a musician. And I think that the way I work with language, with text, you know, with dialogue, like you were saying, and then we throw out all the dialogue. <laughs> the way that I work with dialogue is musically. I hear it. Oh, right? that's I interesting. That comes from having a musician parent. Yeah. And were, were you always creative as a kid? Like, was, I mean, growing up around music, it gives you a platform for, for your creativity. What did your father do? Um, well, my father wasn't in the picture, but he was a, he was a finance guy. He was a, a stockbroker. I think the story I've heard is that he wanted to be a writer. And when it was time for him to go to college, his dad, who was a junk man, he owned a junkyard, um, said, I'm not paying for you to go to college to study English. Like, that's just not gonna happen. Uh, like, like, if I'm paying for you to go to college, you, you gotta study business. And so my dad studied business, but loved language, loved writers. Um, right. And yeah, all I know is that he was a stockbroker and then he got very sick, he had cancer and died. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it also feels... Oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead please. No, you. No, you. Uh, it's well, your, this is all about you. <laughs> my mom made her living in public relations. Um, she was oh. a concert pianist until I was born. And then she taught piano lessons and then she got divorced. And like, you can't raise a kid on piano lessons. So she went back to business doing public relations and she mostly worked in fashion. Oh, wow. Yeah. She loved people. You can't go into publicity without loving people. People and clothes. Yeah. And I know there's in your bio, you're identified as a memoirist. Yeah, I wrote a book called No Place Like Home. It's a memoir um, that Random House published in 2010. And it tells the story of how I lived in 39 apartments in 20 years in New York City. Wow. And again, like, do you just pinch yourself? Like, it, the, I know, I know this isn't how it worked, but it's like, oh, I want to do this. And then Natalie Portman came into the picture. And now I'm writing a, and I feel like writing a book and now Random House. Like, 
how do you make sense of all these successes and how do you use them to propel you to the next success? Because I know it's not all a bullet train. Yeah, I mean, in my experience there, oh, that's such a good question. Um, I don't know if I have a good enough answer for that very, very good question. I mean, the book came out of a play that I'd written called Hunting and Gathering. And in the play, which is a totally fictional, like the only thing in the play that's true is the play opens with a list of apartments. And those are my actual addresses. Those are apartments I had actually lived in. And the experience and the emotional ground of the play is true, but the facts are not. And when the play was produced, I had gotten priced out of my apartment in New York City and was living, um, I was living in, uh, at New Dramatist, which is a um, service organization, a membership organization for playwrights. And they had a couple like dorm rooms upstairs. And I was there until I could move to LA. And a um, reporter from the New York Times caught wind of that and wrote a story about me and my play and how hard it was for artists to make a living and, and pay rent. And this editor at Random House caught wind of it and called me and said, do you want to write a book? And I mean, I loved the experience. It was really, really fun. And I, I loved writing that book. It was, it was a great experience, actually. And, um, but it didn't lead to more book writing. You know what I mean? So like in the way how you're asking the question, it would be like, oh, yeah. And then I'll like write more books. Great. But um, it didn't. <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm still learning, quite frankly. I, I don't know that there's, again, in my experience, like it hasn't felt like a ladder, like I climb this wrong and then that leads no. to that wrong and that. It, it really does feel like every day there's daily practice. Am I writing today? Am I creating? Am I making something I like? Am I working with people I respect? And then, you know, every like, fourth rung of the ladder, the heavens open up and there's an opportunity to do it on a bigger scale. And I, I hope that that continues to be the case. I'm making stuff, I'm making stuff I love. And it, it seems like I'm still mystified by, you know, because like you were saying at the beginning of our conversation, there are so many artists and there are so many artists making fascinating work and now more than ever when people can just like make something and upload it and it feels like there's all these cool platforms to get to peer into other artists worlds i'm still mystified by the moments in which the marketplace and my personal artistic practice intersect each other yeah i don't it doesn't seem like you take a, a lot of breaks you're not somebody that needs to like, <laughs> <laughs> like <he> breaks. <laughs> I don't no. really understand rest. Yeah. Yeah. I remember talking to somebody and they said, no, no, I took a break and I was on holiday. I was writing this script and I was like, no, if you're on holiday and writing a script, that's not actually a break. Yeah. So have you ever, did you ever come to a point where you were like, I don't know. Cause I think our body tells us to take a break. Our like creative mind tells us to take a break when our tank is empty or our body <laughs> shuts down and we get sick. Have you found yourself in a place of like, I need to regroup? Yeah, absolutely. When I had my son, um, I, had, I had my son um, in 2010. I think I was, on, I was pregnant on my book tour. And I had gotten myself a screenwriting job. I knew that I needed a job <laughs> to support myself for like after he was born. Um, so I got myself a job by Thanksgiving and I stopped working. I turned in the outline the end of November, stopped working, had my son in December, and then I didn't work for two months. And then I went right back to work and I worked up until 11 months postpartum. So I worked from the time he was um, six weeks old. I did that screenplay that I'd gotten hired to do. And then I was hired to rewrite, uh, to do a director's pass on a movie I'd written the year before. And I did all of that work. And then at like 11 months postpartum. So a year from the time I had ostensibly taken my six week, you know, whatever it's called, family break. What do they call it? When yeah. you don't work because you just had a baby? Parental. Maternity yeah. leave. Yeah. leave. Right, I had yeah, taken like six weeks off. I crashed. It was like, it was like November of 2011. And all of a sudden my body was like, hey, guess what? You got to rest now. 
Yeah. And it was like a year where I really didn't know what I was going to write next. And I had to, I had a child late in life. My mother had died. I wasn't going to have another one. I don't have any siblings. And it was kind of like, okay, you want to be a mom? Here's a kid, stay home. And so I spent, you know, a year at home with my son and, and my son definitely raising him has slowed me down professionally because I really, when he was little, it was really important to me just to like do all that right and just make sure that he was the priority. And that's changing. Yeah. He's, he's nine. So I'm pretty much back at work fully. Yeah. Do you remember the thing that um, got you back into gear after that year? Like, cause, cause I, I can imagine like, our creativity is so much a part of us that I mourn it when I'm not able yeah, to practice. Yeah, I, I can tell you exactly what it was. It was two different things that happened at the same time. I, I had an opportunity. There was a play that I had made collectively, like in the Mike Lee style, two years earlier, about people having random hookups um, through like internet hookup sites. And I had an opportunity to do that play for a one night only presentation in a bar in New York City. These friends of mine, um, Rising Phoenix Rep, were running a program called Chino Nights. And they like offered me a Chino night. And I um, came back to New York and did that play. And it was like a three day rehearsal process and a one night only gig. And mm -hmm. around that time, I also started writing I had these two or three different ideas. You know, when you're a playwright, because there's so little money involved, they really um, encourage you to write what's in your heart and to just like go draft after draft after draft, honing it till you get the story you want to tell. And in film and television, I was shocked when I moved to LA that my agents would say, um, we want you to pitch us your ideas first and we'll tell you which ones to write. Right. And it was, I found that super overwhelming. Like, how do you talk about, you know, like, how do you talk about an embryo? Like, how do you talk about yeah. this weird, yeah, right. unformed, inchoate set of impulses that like may or may not make a thing, but like, you know, I don't know how to talk about that. And so I would pitch some ideas and they'd be like, maybe, no, don't write that. Or yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think period pieces don't sell, or I don't know, is that female protagonist likable? I don't know. And so I, I had, you know, I think part of what was so painful during the year I didn't write is I had all these, like, it's almost like having a blocked duct, right? Because they had said to me, like, don't write that, and don't write that, and don't write that. And a, another writer friend of mine said, well, you have to write those things yeah. because you don't know what the project is on the other side of them. Yeah. Unless you yeah. write them, you will be stopped up. Exactly. And so yeah. I went back and I just wrote for the joy of writing. I happen to really like writing. Like I know it's really popular for all these super fancy writers to come out and talk about how awful it is and how much they hate it. But like I really like writing. And I went no, back you can to projects that my agents had told me not to write and I wrote them all. <laughs> and suddenly it was like I was a, yeah. I was like a scientist in the lab and I got to do the experiment because when you're pitching an idea, you're not doing the experiment. You're doing marketing language. You're, you're talking about yeah. something, but when you're actually in the lab and you're like, I'm really interested in this person's smile and I'm really obsessed with the summer that I was 19. And I'm also really, really interested in this like super fucked up story I heard about my neighbor and like this dude she met. I don't know what any of it means, but I'm going to go in the story right. lab. I'm going to throw them all in the pot and see what happens. And it's like, it's like improvising. Suddenly something starts to bubble and you're like, oh, oh, I get what I'm writing. Oh my God, it's that. But for me, yeah. that doesn't happen unless I go in the story lab and start writing. Yeah, it's a bridge sometimes to the other thing. Like, I, it's interesting because the, the, the saying is write what you know, but then I think as soon as you step into Hollywood, it's like write what people want to see. Maybe that's changing a little bit more now. Do you think it's changing? I feel like people are coming up with projects that are very personal. I love the personal projects. I feel like yeah. I... I know, that's so your world. I can see it. Oh my God. All of the things that... 
you know, I spent so much time when I lived in, I don't live in Hollywood anymore. I moved back to New York City. And so that really helped ground me and really helped remind Mm -hmm. me like who I am and what I value and what kind of work I want to make. But all of the projects that I love are the ones that I'm sure somebody told that person not to write. I'm sure someone was like, I don't get it. Like Like what? Uh, like I may destroy you. I think I may destroy. I was gonna you. say that. I was gonna say that. Yeah, that I mean, may destroy me. That show. I think it's the most exciting thing I've seen on television. I was blown away, and I was. What do you like about it? it? Um, I like how bold it is. I like yeah. how personal it feels. I like how relentless it feels. I like how honest it feels. I like that the events are between the friends. Like the event isn't let's go get the rapist. The event is what has this rape done within this community and how does consent work in every single interaction they're having with each other and with the outside world. And I love how unapologetic the focus is. The focus is really on the relationships between the friends in the world and the woman with herself. And it, that yeah. feels the right. No, yeah. It feels like that's the kind of show that has come together as an ensemble. And they've done a lot of discussions about characters and relationships because it's, it looks so easy. Like those relationships look so easy to play. And the visual style, the visual style is incredible. Love it. I feel like the I visual, love it. visual style matches, you know, she has this, um, kind of dual identity as both a rape victim and an internet celebrity. And, and visually you can really feel like the, the celebrity presence and the presence of the camera and, and the pieces that are romanticized along with the pieces that are really raw and un, un, um, unmitigated yeah. and unfiltered and just like hitting. It's so vulnerable. Have you ever found yourself in a place of like, <laughs> excessive vulnerability like with your work with your writing Vera felt like oh my god I'm way too naked on this show yes I have yeah what did what do you how do you where do you put that kind of I mean that's vulnerability on a whole other level there's like exposing yourself and then it's exposing yourself sure but like that's what we that what, what we oh yeah that's what we right? want to like, do yeah it's like I want to no. go see that movie where everyone's really masked and not vulnerable yeah <laughs> right everybody's really safe we i always say like whenever i'm improvising like nobody wants to scene where see a scene where somebody's like hey how are you i'm pretty good yeah me too things are okay yeah things are fine like nobody wants to see things be fine it's but so it's exposing like how do you how yeah. do you balance that i, I mean, know that we crave it, but i also know that it's terrifying i was just gonna say from what you were saying about the okay i'm fine scene i just so i just did this first draft reading of my film ramona at midlife and i noticed and i think this is true of first drafts i think first drafts are full of those oh yeah no i'm good moments they're like forgive us an ice cream like in every scene someone's like i'm sorry (laughs) i forgive you let's get ice cream right because we're conflict diverse so those are our first instincts as writers is to make everything okay and make sure everybody's comfortable. And then, yeah, but that's our life. Like as humans, we want to keep things okay. And as artists, we want things to be not okay. Absolutely. And certainly as women, we're taught to take care of everybody's feelings all the motherfucking time. So we're always like, does everybody feel okay? What can I do to make it better? You know, I also love yeah. Fleabag. I feel like Fleabag lives in this space where everything's not okay. Oh, nothing is okay. But yeah, that's what we want to watch. So have you, like, how do you protect yourself from, I don't know, that kind of um, rawness? I don't know that I do. I think I live with it. I think I just live in the rawness sometimes. And, you know, certainly the day after my first draft reading, I woke up feeling really vulnerable and messed up. And I had to remember like, oh, yeah. I'm vulnerable. I just showed a bunch of people my guts. Maybe yeah. I'll feel that way today. But I have to tell you, like having a child is certainly a great antidote for that because my son doesn't care what state I'm in. Like he still needs breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and he still wants to go to the swimming pool, and he still needs me to help him do like a hundred things a day. So right. it's, it's kind of a good grounding, you know? Yeah. Yeah, mom, wrap up that vulnerability. I need some tater tots. 
pretty much. Deal, deal with it, mom. Deal with it. Yeah. I'm so grateful to have found you. I think you're such an interesting oh, artist, and I'm so you. excited to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to plug a couple of things. I'm doing a short Plug film. away. I'm doing a short film called Pretty Doesn't Hurt. Um, I'm not directing it. I wrote it. And the director is Jennifer Rao. And again, I wrote it for a specific company of actors, um, Jenna Krasowski, Jenny McGuire, Andy Lucian, and this awesome nine, 10 year old now named Keely. Um, and we have been building the script. We were meant to shoot in May, but obviously with COVID-19, that didn't happen. So we're going to yeah. be um, shooting next year sometime. And I have this feature called Polly Freed uh, that's been in development with Rebel Media. And it went through NYWIF's uh, screenplay to pre-production lab. And it went through New York Stage and Films Filmmakers Lab. And I'm directing that one. We're out to actors right now. And so hopefully, you know, that'll come together. And then I have this new project for Mona at Midlife. Um, and my plays are published by Broadway Play Publishing and Sam French. Um, I have a website, which I've sent to you, um, but you can definitely read my plays. They're out in the world. And the memoir, No well, Play Like Home. Is we're going to follow you. We're going to follow the heck out of you. Bring like, on. Thank you. This is how this, these chats with Firecracker Department, they start like this. And then it's like, oh, no, now we're family. And whenever you have something that you're launching, you just have to give us a nudge and we'll make sure that the world knows about it. And, um, and so they should. Thank you so they so should. Much. You're doing such cool work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I usually ask a bunch of the same questions at the end. So I'm going to wrap this up again. I, I also usually say that I could talk to you forever and which I could, we've talked for an hour, but I could really talk to you for easily whole afternoon. Um, and one day when we're in the same city, we're going to find ourselves with a cup of coffee and we'll have longer, longer I'm chats. Let's. I'm so, um, I know. I just, I love meeting folks like you because it makes me feel, um, it reminds me of the art in film and I don't always see that, but then I speak with folks like you and I'm like, oh, okay. There's people out there that are still creating art within the film industry. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Here are the questions. Okay. Um, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. To me, a firecracker is a starter, starter. <laughs> love it. Yeah. What do you want to be best known for? Um, what do I want to be best known for? Um, I guess like ensemble driven film. Yeah. Um, two words to describe your present state of mind right now. Super tired. <laughs> <laughs> you are faking it so well. Oh, I would not have given you either of those words. Super. Yes. Tired. Not so much. Um, okay. If your life was a movie and this was like the final scene, what's been the climax to your movie? when everything has changed? Oh, probably the birth of my son. Yeah, I feel like you kind of have to say that when you have a kid, otherwise the kid's gonna listen to this and be like, boo. Yeah, my kid's boo. gonna listen to this. He's, my kid is so <laughs> uninterested in my work life. The only thing he finds interesting is that in my play, Hunting and Gathering, there's a major plot point around a video game called Big Buck Hunter. And the fact that I, A, wrote about video games, and B, employed a giant plastic gun in the play is literally the only interesting thing about my life as a player. <laughs> I know, I know. And then one day you'll do a movie with like Disney or something. You'd be like, mom, when'd you do, when'd you learn how to do all that? Exactly. You had no idea. Yeah, that's um, What's something that people don't know about you? Um... I don't know. What is something that people don't know about me? Um, but I don't know how to swim. Oh, that's so funny. The other day I was swimming and I thought, I'm so glad I learned that. Do you have any plans to learn how to no, swim? No, none. Ter terrified. <laughs> terrified. I'm utterly terrified. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a story right there. You're writing your own story about the woman yeah. that doesn't swim. Um, what's been your favorite mistake and what have you learned from it? Oh, my favorite mistake. I had a play at Steppenwolf in 2001. And when the play was in previews, the director, Anna Shapiro, came to me and said, hey, hold up. We have a problem. Your play has no climax. 
And I had no idea what she was talking about, none. And I was like, I don't know, it works for me. <laughs> I like it. And we, um, she was so intent on solving the mystery and figuring out what the climax to the play should be that she went ahead and paid for extra actors equity hours so that we could go back into rehearsal and we could agree on the exact moment that this alleged climax was supposed to happen, but we couldn't agree on what it was. And I think the whole experience was really frustrating, I'm sure, for everyone involved, including her. And But I went away thinking, um, what exactly is she talking about? And when I started writing movies, um, in every movie pitch I ever did, I would get the feedback, hey, so like you're missing this big moment toward the end of the second act where like everything makes sense. And I oh. sat down and, and really took apart structure and like what it is that we mean by these words that we all throw around so easily. And you know, whether you're like a save the cat person or a Bob McKee person or like a Joan Shekel person where you're like, I don't even believe in conflict. Like the fact of the matter is we put our stories together intentionally for a reason, so why, what is that? And because of this mistake of not having a climax in my play until we find each other, I, I started to really learn um, story structure and how to yeah. command story structure in a more intentional way. That's fantastic. Um, what's something that you do when you need to regroup and recharge? I do yoga. Good for you. Oh, yoga. I love and hate you, yoga. Um, <laughs> what's I've been doing it for 20 years. I love it. It's like my everyday. Oh, yeah. I, I have not crossed the, the bridge where I'm loving yoga. It mostly, we just sort of tolerate each other, but I get through okay. it. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't find yeah, right? other stuff to do. <laughs> Um, what's something that you haven't done in your life, but you know you have to do? Um, learn to ride a bike. Oh, interesting. Swimming and bike. I mean, that's a character. The woman that can't swim and ride a bike. Yeah. Can't wait to that's see her on screen. Character. Yeah. My final yeah. question is, what's advice that you would give to your younger self? Stop apologizing. Don't apologize. Yes. Yes. Gosh, that's advice I want to give myself now. So thanks okay. for that reminder. Do it. Yeah. Don't, do it. <laughs> Just don't do it. No. I listened to this great Brene Brown um, podcast about apologizing, and it really opened my brain up to like the value of apologizing, the challenge of it, but also like not saying that's okay. If somebody has apologized oh, yeah. to you. Like, look, if you're an asshole and you do something terrible, by all means, apologize for that. But if you're just apologizing for your right to be in the room, if you're apologizing for participating, if you're apologizing for taking up space, like, don't do that. Show up, no. be clear, do ask for what you need. And if you yeah. hurt someone, apologize, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, and if somebody apologizes to you, you can also say, yeah, you're right to apologize. That's right. That did hurt me, you know. Yeah. We're learning, it's a new day and I'm still learning. We're I learning. so appreciate your time, Brooke. I'm so, so grateful to have had this chance to chat with you <laughs> and to share you with our community. And as I said, we got you. If there's ever anything that you're doing that you need some support on, please let us know. Thank you so much, that's really great. It was great to talk Pleasure. to you. Incredible, right? I just loved my discussion with Brooke so much. One day, I'm going to take all these firecrackers out for a cocktail or a coffee and spend like thousands of dollars on cappuccinos to just celebrate the conversations that we've had. You can follow Brooke on Twitter at Berman underscore Brooke or on Instagram at Brooke Berman NYC. Brooke's memoir, No Place Like Home, is available now and watch out for that audiobook coming out in April. And you can find out more about Brooke and her upcoming short, Pretty Doesn't Hurt, on Facebook.com slash film Pretty Doesn't Hurt. And, of course, make sure you're also following Real Women's Network because they're incredible. This platform is truly amazing. Find them on Instagram at Real, R-E-E-L, Women's Network. Or if Twitter's your jam, find them on Real Women's Network and then the number one. 
That's R-E-E-L, women's, N-E-T-W, and the number one. You'll find it. I believe in you. In all cases, just check out our show notes because we got you. We've got the link. We'll be bringing you a new creator from the Real Women's Network every month. So watch out for these new voices and check out what's available to stream now at realwomensnetwork.com. And stay tuned to our socials at Firecracker D-E-P-T for updates and all those announcements. All right, everybody. I'm Naomi. Take care of yourself and reach out if you need some firecracker love. We got you. See you next time on Firecracker Department. Winnie Wong is our firecracker head producer. Follow her at wonder underscore Wong on Instagram and wonder underscore Wong 8 on Twitter. Sydney Nielsen is our co-producer and head editor. You can follow them at Sydney underscore Nielsen. Sydney, like Australia. Nielsen, like milk. You can follow me on social media at my last name at Sneekus, S-N-I-E-C-K-U-S. The rest of the team comes at you from Toronto, Los Angeles, Austin, London, Dubai, and truly from all over the world. And we are so excited and feel so lucky to have two amazing, incredible firecracker interns for the winter of 2021. Fran Caviello and Saba Dolati. And I have to say, these are firecracker humans to their core, and we're so lucky to have them with us. Get into the full Firecracker Department core team at firecrackerdepartment.com slash about, because we're always updating and we're always growing. Stay tuned to our newsletter for advanced updates on our monthly meditations, upcoming mentorship workshops, live script department readings, festival partnerships, weekly writing workouts, and dates for 2021, and so much more. There's lots going on in Firecracker Department. Don't forget, we also have a weekly brunch on Zoom every Sunday, and our live Firecracker follow-ups return this month, so stay tuned to our socials for who and when. Now, whether you're a first-time or a long-time listener to the Firecracker Department, we always, always want to hear from you. We love hearing what quotes, the specifics, the nuances of things that stuck with you from each of the episode. We mean it. We really do. And we respond to every single thing that comes our way. If it gives your brain goosebumps or it piques your curiosity or makes you want to stop and write something down, send it back to us or our firecracker guest or both. I mean, everybody likes to know that when they put something out into the world that it resonates. And if it sparks something in you, use that creativity to take some creative action. Let us know. Share it because it just reverberates, you know? If you see somebody being creative, that might spark somebody else's creativity. So pay it forward. Thanks also to Jeff Malutinovic and Igor Korea for our theme music. And thanks to you. Yeah, you. Sitting there, driving there, walking there, working out there, and taking time to listen. We know there's a lot of options out there, and we really appreciate you choosing us. We hope to see you at the Firecracker online community, maybe brunch. Maybe the writing workshop. Come on and share some time with us. And until next time, thank you for listening to the Firecracker Department. We'll see you next time.